0: are live, we are ready to roll, ladies and gentlemen, Daily Power Parasha Thursday, October 7th, Torah portion is Noah, and we've been exploring some absolutely incredible and inspiring themes this week. Let's jump into the fifth reading, which corresponds to today. All right, yesterday we read about how Noah and his family and the animals, they all were commanded to leave the ark. I mentioned that sometimes... It feels nice to just curl up in bed, pull the covers over your head, and escape the world. Whether that's physically or spiritually or a combination of the two, you know, there's, uh, there's some comfort in escapism. It's what the spies, remember what the spies uh, in, in the, uh, the spy story, right? They didn't want to, I'm not talking about James Bond. This is another story, the Bible spy story, where they didn't want to go into the land of Israel. They, they wrecked, the, they, they threw the mission because they wanted to stay outside of the real world. And at some point, even though you, get, you need that kind of solid foundation, a child is educated by immersing the child in Torah and Judaism, you know, 24-7, and they don't have a job because that's all they're doing is studying Torah, etc. But at some point, you got to jump into the world, and that is the commandment that we read about yesterday. Today, we read about the covenant, Because yesterday, God, we we got the inside scoop that God decided not to ever again destroy the world. But today, God articulates it and creates a sign, which we will explore right now. Genesis chapter 9, verse number 8. And God said to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, So here's the communication. And I, God, behold, I am setting up my covenant with you with you and with your seed after you. So this is not just a covenant with Noah and his sons, but this is Noah, his sons, and their progeny. In other words, human beings for all time. Let's continue verse 10. And the covenant is also with every living creature that is with you, among the fowl, among the cattle, among all the beasts of the earth, with you, all of those who came out of the ark of, of all the living creatures of the earth. By the way, You may have noticed this. I think I pointed it out before. Every living creature, okay? When you have that that description, living creature, that's referring to what we would call animal life or the animal kingdom, which includes animals, birds, um, creepy crawlies. All of those things would be called living creatures. Although stones have a soul, right? But they're not called chaya. They're not called chai, living creatures. Living creatures are specifically those that move. Now, trees also, although they're alive, clearly they're alive, they're also not called living creatures. Living creatures is specifically referring to the animal kingdom. There are four classifications of life in the Jewish understanding. There's domeim, which is inanimate life. Tzomeach, vegetation. Chai, which is animal life, which includes animals, birds, etc., and then Medaber, which is the human being, the communicator, the human being. So, Domem, Tzomea, Chai, Medaber, inanimate, vegetation, animal, and human life. So, God is communicating his covenant to, to the human beings, known as sons. And also, I mean, not to, but it's about the animals as well. Let's continue. Verse 11. Robin, yes. I have a question. That doesn't refer anywhere to what happened to the giants. That was reference to the ark. Well, we know that there was a giant og that survived the flood. There might have been others. It's possible, but I know for sure that og is the tradition is that he held onto the side of the ark. As far as did others survive, were they like so tall that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So let's continue with verse 11. And what's the covenant? What's the nature of the covenant? Here we go. And I will establish my covenant with you. <clears throat> and never again will all flesh be cut off by the flood waters. And there will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. By the way, yesterday's reading, we read about the decision, the internal decision where God says, you know what, I'm not going to do this again. And there it says God, God decided to never again destroy the world. Well, here it's a little bit qualified. God says, I'm never again going to bring a flood to destroy the earth, which opens up the possibility for other forms of destruction. By the way, just giving you that uh, that little detail. Um, Okay, let's jump into verse number 12. Oh, oh, before I do that, though, um, and I mentioned this yesterday also, brisi or briti comes from the word bris or brit, which means covenant. Um, covenant is a very interesting phenomenon. What is a covenant? A covenant means an agreement. What's an agreement? An agreement is that two parties, you know, let's talk about a peace covenant, a peace deal signed between two nations, a treaty, if you will. So um, Israel and Egypt, for example, or other countries that sign a peace treaty. So what's the the rationale behind it? You You have two parties that are agreeing to get along with each other. So I'm going to ask the obvious question. We call this the klutz kasha. It's like an obvious question, so obvious no one asks it. What's the point of of signing a peace treaty? If you're at peace, then you don't need a treaty. And if you're not at peace, how does a treaty help? Are you with me on the question? In other words, if things are good, they're good. If they're not good, they're not good. So what's the point? The point of a treaty, which I'm calling a covenant, the point of a covenant is that you're saying at a time of peace, that I'm going to pledge that even if I want to act in an unpeaceful fashion, I'm going to, by this pledge right now, I'm going to not do that. I'm going to hold myself back and act like a mensch. And I'm going to treat you, even if I don't feel so loving, I'm going to treat you in that loving, peaceful fashion. This is the nature of a of a, of a covenant or a treaty between two nations. It's we're getting along, we're Promising and pledging to continue to get along, even when we don't want to get along, we'll still we'll revert back to this idea. This is why commitment. Essentially, it's a commitment. This is why commitment is so important. Commitment is not important when you're excited about something. Then you don't need the commitment. Are you with me on that? For example, marriage, right? And and I've done courses on marriage before. We had a July course, the Art of Marriage, some years back. Many different angles to explore, but one thing vis-a-vis commitment. Why why the need for marriage in the first place? Why the need for that type of commitment? Well, there's a spiritual um, angle on this, but the practical angle is, ideally, the commitment of marriage is that even when things are complicated, right? When things are not as they were originally, perhaps, things are a little bit more complicated, We'll fall back on that commitment and and work through it. Again, obviously, sometimes it can't be worked through. But but ideally, that's the the notion of the commitment. So in a relationship, a covenant would be saying, we're in a good place now. I'm pledging to to, to be committed even when I'm I'm not feeling that connection. This is our relationship with God. Relationship with God is such that even if we turn away, even if we feel that God has done things that we don't like, we're committed. We're in this relationship. Let's continue. Let's continue with, uh, with verse 12. Um, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant. So there's one thing to make an agreement. The question is, what's the proof or what's the sign? Where's the contract? So God says, this is the sign which I am placing between me and between you and between every living soul that is with you for everlasting generations. So this covenant is between God and, and humankind and every living soul, i.e. all the animals, for all generations. Okay, here we go. What is the sign? Verse 13, my rainbow I have placed in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between myself and the earth. So the rainbow is the sign, is the contract, is the proof of God's covenant that God is promising, even if he's not, he's not so happy with us, he's not going to destroy the world. God says, doesn't matter how I feel, I'm not going to do the action. And by the way, this is an important distinction in life, which we don't learn immediately, because when we're younger, we feel like ho- whatever we feel, we have to do. Our, our, our emotions... We consider them very important when we're younger. Hopefully, as we mature, we realize that not everything that feels good is good. Not everything that doesn't feel good is not good, right? Just because I don't like it doesn't mean it's not necessary. Just because I want to doesn't mean that that's kosher, right? So we, we can hopefully, at, at some point in life, distinguish between feelings and behavior. And so the same thing is here. If, even if I don't feel the love, I'm going to behave in a manner that is true to that love. And ultimately, the more I behave in that manner, the more the love will get re-inspired. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. Okay, let's continue with verse 14. Actually, before that, I'm going to drop a note for myself to come back to. We're going to explore the Kabbalah, the rainbow, today in a moment. Why is it the rainbow specifically is the sign of this covenant? God could have done anything. I mean, the lightning bolt. Um who knows? I mean, why specifically the rainbow as a sign? I guess lightning bolt is a bit destructive, potentially. But why is rainbow associated with this covenant? We're going to get into that momentarily. Let's continue, though, verse 14. And it shall come to pass, when I cause clouds to come upon the earth, that the rainbow will appear in the cloud. Right? Of course, we know that, that rainbows are produced of the the, the combination of sunlight and Water droplets in the air, essentially, right? So when the water droplets that are in the air are refracting the, the, the sunlight, so that creates the dazzling display of the rainbow. Let's continue. And I, rem- I, and I will remember my covenant, God says. In other words, when, when the clouds come and the rainbow appears, I will remember my covenant. I mean, maybe you can say, you know what? It's like after a storm, when the air is thick with water and the sun begins to come out, That's when it rains. So maybe this is post-flood. You know, after the storm of the flood, God says, there's hope for humanity, and I'm not going to do this again. So that's kind of like the light at the end of that rainy tunnel, so to speak. So maybe it's symbolic of the rainbow on that level. I'm still going to get into the Kabbalah of it, don't worry. But that's just a thought that came to mind. Maybe there's uh, another, maybe simpler symbolism right there. So God says, I will remember my covenant, which is between me and between you and between all living creatures, among all flesh, and the water... Will no longer become a flood to destroy all all flesh. Water will instead refract sunlight and produce a rainbow. It's no longer going to be used to destroy all flesh. The storm will subside, the sun will come out, the rainbow will shine, no more floods. That seems like a very basic theme the way I understand it. Verse 16, and the rainbow shall be in the cloud. Still the rainbow. My gosh, all these verses about rainbows. And the rainbow shall be in the cloud. And I will see it, God says. I will see it. To remember the everlasting covenant between God and between every living creature among all flesh, which is on the earth. It's almost like God is saying, you know, when I need to remind myself of this covenant because things are getting a little, uh, you know, a little complicated, I'm going to look at the rainbow and say, all right, I promised. Okay, let let me get through this. Right? Obviously, we're not trying to attribute too much anthropomorphism to God. But nonetheless, this is kind of the... Um, the energy energy that's being evoked here. Let's continue verse 17. And God said to Noah, "This is this is the sign of the covenant that I have set up between myself and between all flesh that is on the earth." And what is the sign? The sign of the rainbow. So now it's time to do two things. Number 1, we're going to welcome Mark. And number 2, let's welcome Mark. And number 2, Hey Mark, good to see you. Ah, Mark is, uh, is on, is rolling, rolling with uh, DPP. Um, so let's go back to the Kabbalah. That's a good name for a class. Say it again. That's a good name for a class. You want to hear a better name? You guys ready yeah, for this name? With, no, you, no, listen, Mark, you'll no, love this. Rabbi. You got, well, hold on, hold on. I'm telling you one second. Let me stop sharing for a second. I want to see everybody nice and big. You guys will love this name. Imagine the concept we go walking or jogging on the Beltline, and everyone listens to the same recording, the same class. So we're, we're, um, we're exercising and studying Torah at the same time on the Beltline. We start from Chabad, we meet afterwards, we shmooze about it, and it's called, you ready for this, running commentary. I'm telling you, guys, come on, running commentary, it's gold, it's golden. Running commentary, it's brilliant. You get an MP3, or you get an audio recording, 10, 15, 20 minutes, depending on on how long you wanna do this. You hit, everyone starts off, you hit play, everyone goes at their own pace, gathers back a Chabad for some l'chaims or whatever, beverage, and uh, that's it. But what about the jokes? The hot yoga, no, jokes are pre-included in the recording, of course, yeah. What do you think, it's gonna be a dry recording? Chapter one, Noah stepped onto the ark. And then, I mean, come on, it's, we don't do that. That's not how we roll here. Okay, running commentary. I feel like even it's, it's like the very COVID friendly even. All right, we'll have to do this. What happened to Mark? That's it, we moved away from the car, the car theme and he's done. All right, back to our story. I wanna share with you the Kabbalah, of the rainbow. This is an insight that the mystics, all right, Mark is back. This is an insight that the mystics share. And it's also elaborated on by the Labavitcher Rebbe. So here it goes. Rain is symbolic of our efforts. Let me explain. The way the rain cycle works is that first w- the water that's on Earth evaporates. Right. The way it works is water. The first thing is the water evaporates. The sun heats. The oceans and the lakes and the rivers, the water evaporates, and then the water gathers in the sky. It creates um, condensation, right? Enough condensation ultimately leads to precipitation. So these are the three shins, if you will: evaporation, condensation, and Precipitation. There you go. Say perspiration, but that's the wrong thing. Precipitation, right? It rains. Fine. So those are the three the three steps, which means that what comes down is a product of what went up. You with me? Right? The rain that comes down is the is the condensation, the precipitation from the, what evaporated up. So what goes up comes down, which is why it's important that we take care of the planet. So that we don't pollute the waters, so that we don't have toxic rain that comes down on us, because what we put up comes down. Now, this, the Kabbalists love this concept. I mean, we learned this in social studies and what, whatever science, whatever the class was called, as kids, second, third, fourth grade, whenever you learn this stuff, we, water table and all that stuff. I remember even the images, the, the, probably the mimeographs. Remember, they used to run off those things with the purple paper and whatnot? Okay. I'm dating myself. So here's the deal. We learned this in science, the Kabbalists love this in spirituality. Because what it means is that our actions matter. That what we do affects a higher realm, work with me on the spiritual part of it, right? Affects the higher realms and ultimately that triggers what comes down below. What comes down from above to below. We call this in Kabbalah "Isarusa de la Sata" and "Isarusa de la Ela." I'm hitting you with mystical words that are Aramaic, actually, because you know Zohar was written in, in, in Aramaic. "Isarusa de la "de la Sata," and "Isarusa de la Ela." "Isarusa de la Sata" means it's an awakening from below, which means that it's our effort, if you will. And then there's "Isarusa de la which is an awakening from above, which is what comes from above to below. Eight. one of the ways that this interaction works is first, there's a, a, there's a rising from below to above and then a corresponding descent from above to below. So what we, we call the spiritual or Kabbalistic karma, what we put out there, the, the effects of our effort are what ultimately comes back down to us from above. So if we want, you know, blessings, in the, blessings from Hashem, so there's what we do in order to to stir that and to, to, uh, to elicit that from above. All of this is, is kind of like, you know, some basic spiritual um, uh, uh, mechanisms. So if we put out negativity, then that's what there is for, available for us in the, in the universe. When we put out positivity, that's what's available for us in the universe. It's what we put out from below to above that comes back down to us. So the Rebbe says the following. And this ties into the way we explained the flood Kabbalistically in the previous days of this week. Before the flood, there was a greater degree of corruption. The reason why after the flood, God will no longer destroy the world is not simply because God changed his mind. Whoops, that way, I went too far. I'm not going to do that again. You know, oh, I got to be better in control of my, uh, of my temper. That's not, it's not what's going on here. It's, as I said pre- in, the, in, the, in our previous sessions, it's because God, it's because the flood cleansed the earth, cleansed humanity in such a way that the corruption can never get as bad as it was. And that's why it was a flood with waters. That's what the waters were cleansing. Okay. Before the flood, there was a corruption that was so deep, so thick, that what evaporated, if you will, what deeds evaporated. What rose above? Corrupt deeds. Corrupt, coarse, thick, ugly, opaque, spiritually opaque deeds. How is a rainbow formed? The water droplets are clear enough, like a crystal, right? What happens if you take a crystal and the light shines into it? or prism, right? It it refracts the light and you see a rainbow on your desk. The water droplets in the air are doing the same thing. Because they're clear, because they're perfectly clear, when the water hits the droplets, it, refla- it refracts all of the visible spectrums that are in that light. Right? White light contains all of the, uh, the all of the frequencies and it it refracts the entire spectrum and that's what we see with the rainbow. But that provides, or that's dependent on the the fact that the water is clear to refract the light. When the water in the the heavens, if you will, is not clear, when it's muddy, no rainbow. If it's muddy up in heaven, you're not going to get a rainbow. When humanity was corrupt before the flood, when the deeds were so corrupt that the only solution was a flood, well, There was no possibility for the rainbow. It's after the flood, after this cosmic cleansing, after this ritual bath, this mikvah for the universe, it's then that our deeds have a certain transparency to them, spiritual transparency, where they are clear and and bright and are able to refract the light and that produces the rainbow. So I'm, I'm kind of mixing kind of mixing the spiritual phenomenon and the physical phenomenon to understand how they, they align and why it is that a rainbow is not some random sign in the sky of the covenant, but a natural ramification, a natural result of the flood. And natural result of the flood is that now the world itself has been purified so that rainbows can be a thing. right? Our efforts, can, our actions are pure and clear And refract the light so the rain so the water that evaporates likewise models the spiritual effects the physical so the physical water itself is clear to refract the light but before because of the corrupt before the flood because of the corruption there couldn't be a rainbow so what God is saying is if I ever get you know upset or something like that I'm gonna use the rainbow as a sign to remind me to remind you to remind all of us that even if it's bad it's not as bad as it was and there's still clarity even within, even within the negativity. All right, I hope that made sense. The cabal of the rainbow, yes? Sort so, of? Yeah. So the, rainbow, so the rainbow only comes out when God is, was a little upset with us. Well, it says, God says, I'll look at the rainbow and I'll remember the covenant. That's why in our tradition, we don't point out, oh, rainbow. We do that with horses. You ever notice that? You're driving down the highway and you see horses. The first thing you say is, Horses. Everyone says it. It's like, oh, or cows. Cows, horses. Everyone's a tour guide when it comes to animals on, you know, farms on the side of the road. Everyone loves it. Um, In fact, there's the... Anyway, too long of a a segue, so let's just stick with this. Yes, yes. When God sees the rainbow, it's a reminder. That's why we don't say, oh, look at the rainbow. We say a blessing when we see a rainbow. But we don't point it out because it could have a negative connotation. There's also, it ultimately has a positive connotation, but you only need to pull out a contract, yeah, when things are if things are good, you don't need a contract. You don't need you don't need the covenant. You don't need to to, to reference the covenant. You reference the covenant when things might otherwise be a little shaky, but you like, oh the covenant. So God's like, oh, I don't know. Okay, Rainbow. But that's not a good sign. I mean, it's a good sign that things are gonna stay okay. But it's not good that God needs to be reminded about the rainbow, which is why the Talmud says that in the lifetime of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the author of Zohar, the author of the primary work of Kabbalah and a great scholar, there wasn't, a, a rainbow didn't appear in the, in, the, in the sky. Why? Because he was so righteous and he uplifted his generation to such an extent that it never got to the point where you needed a rainbow as a reminder that God will not destroy the world. So that's a little bit about rainbows. Um, there is... Ties in with the conversation last night about how the sci- science intertwines with Torah. Yes, yes, yes. Um, the natural universe is intertwined with spirituality. That's exactly that's exactly what it is. Now, the um, I'm going to share my screen with you so you can see the following. Well, because we're going to study more, we're going to study the next reading, and so I can show you this. Take a look, okay, from Chabad.org. Which blessing is said upon seeing a rainbow? So here we have the intro, but that's fine. The bracha is, and I'm not going to say God's name because we're not actually doing the blessing. So I'm going to say Hashem. Baruch ata Hashem Elokeinu. Uh, again, I'm not pronouncing it. Melech And so what's the rest? Zocher Habrit, V'Neman Bivrito Vikayam B'Mamaro. What does that mean? Blessed are you, Lord. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who remembers the covenant and is faithful to his covenant and keeps his promise. So we're, we're blessing God. We're saying, God, you know why you're awesome? Because you remember the covenant, you're faithful to your covenant, and you keep your promise to not destroy us again. And again, that's, that's a sign that God won't destroy. So you do the math. I mean, when does that come up? Okay, that's why the rainbow is typically not considered to be, oh, yay, rainbows. It's like, ugh. Rainbow. Thank God for the covenant, but let's, uh, let's, um, let's do a mitzvah. Reading number six. You guys ready? Here we go. Reading number six. This is Friday's reading. If you're wondering why we're doing Friday's reading today, because tomorrow we're going to be doing the Haftorah. So we want to get, want to get enough, you know, we want to get ready and prep for this. Genesis chapter nine, verse number 18. Chai. Here we go. And the sons of Noah... Who came out of the ark were the same three that went in, by the way. And their names were Shem, Cham, and Japheth. Cham, the middle son, middle child, was the father. He was the father of Canaan. Yeah, Canaan, like the land of Canaan that later became the land of Israel. That's the guy. That's the guy. So he was the father of all those nations that lived there before the Jews got there. Are you with me on this? If we're connecting the end of Torah to the beginning of Torah, the end of Torah is where the Jews are about to step into the land of Israel and they need to um, settle and conquer and settle the land of Israel and drive out the Canaanite nations. Well, where do the Canaanite nations come from? The middle son of Noah. But as we'll see soon, that story is fraught with drama. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these three people... The entire earth spread out. So yes, if you want to know where we come from, it's Noah and his three sons. That's, that's the origins of mankind. Not Adam. I mean, Adam also. But there was a flood and then the line continues or is drawn again from Noah's three sons. And Noah, let's read a very interesting story. Noah began to be a master of the soil. Oh, this guy? Oof. Did he have... Oh, Ray, did you want to ask a question? No, no, thank okay, Noah began to be a master of the soil. He took up gardening. Yeah? I want to take up gardening one day. I think that would be a fun thing. Okay. But he that's what he did. I mean, when you're 601 years old and you've just lived a long... I mean, what, what else are you going to do? So he's like, let me try gardening. And he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine. Now, obviously, some time elapsed, you would hope. He drank of the wine and became drunk. And he uncovered himself within his tent. Oh, yes. Yes, yeah, so and now he's drunk and unclothed in his tent. By the way, it's not public intoxication or public um, unclothedness. This is, he's in his tent. Here's what happens next. And Cham, the father of Canaan, just so you know that line, it's just repeating the connection here, right? The Canaanites, yeah, okay. Cham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness, and he told his two brothers outside, Dad's drunk and unclothed in the tent. Okay, that's what he, that's, he's announcing Then, Put it on TMZ. And Shem and Yaphet, the other brothers, took the garment and they placed it on both of their shoulders and they walked backwards and they covered their father's nakedness. And their faces were turned backwards so that they did not see their father's nakedness. The commentators explain. They not only walked in backwards, But even when it came time to put the cover, the clothing, on their father, they didn't turn around and do it. They did it without looking. They did it without looking to protect the dignity of their father. Well, here's the deal. Two out of the three brothers respect the dignity or protect the dignity of their father. The middle son, the middle brother, Chum, he sees it, points it out, makes a big deal about it, doesn't take action. In addition to this, according to our, according to our sages, according to our tradition, Ham assaulted, physically assaulted his father in his drunken and unclothed state. What was the nature of the of the assault? Pretty bad, pretty bad. Okay, and and well, man, I don't know, I don't know if we have to get into the details, but it was it was it was an assault um, of a deviant nature. This is. Um, this is what happened with Ham. Again, if you read the verses, it's just that he pointed out that his father was naked. When you go a little deeper into the story, it's a little bit more than just that. The brothers cover their father. 24. And Noah awoke from his wine, and he knew what his small son had done to him. That phrase, done to him, is what clues our sages into the fact that something was done to him. Other than, Ham saying, oh, hey, dad's naked in the tent, right? The fact that, that, that it says something was, he woke up and he realized what his son had done to him means that's, that Cham had done something to him. And he said, and by the way, he's, he's called here the small son, even though he was the middle son. I guess it's like um, a reference to his character or his uh, whatever, his nature. And Noah said, cursed be Canaan, Cursed be Canaan. Canaan being the, the, the nation or the offspring of Ham. Cursed be Canaan. He shall be a slave among slaves to his brethren. That's a pretty harsh curse from a dad to a son. Right? Cursed be Canaan, a slave among slaves. Not only a slave, but like the slave of slaves. It's like the slaves, they push you around. And he said... Blessed be the Lord, the God of shame, and may Canaan be a slave to them. So basically, Noah blesses the Lord God of shame, his oldest son, and may Canaan be a slave to them, to the progeny of shame. Now, just, just to clarify, from Cham comes Canaan, and those are the nations, the seven nations that existed in, in, in Israel before it was Israel. And who came from shame? The Shemites, a.k.a. the Semites, a.k.a. the Jewish people, amongst others also. But Abraham comes from the progeny of Shem, just so you know, just so you know the the family ties over here. So essentially, the whole Abrahamic uh, dynasty, Abraham and and his progeny are coming from Shem and the other nations are coming from Canaan. Let's continue. Verse 27, a blessing to the other brother who also didn't participate in uh, the assault and whatever, rather in the cover-up. I mean cover-up in a good way in this case. 27, may God expand Japheth and may he dwell in the tents of shame. Oh, look at that. So he's not in the level of shame but he'll he'll be part of that whole thing. And may Canaan be a slave to them as well. Okay. Pretty pretty, um, dramatic story. Uh, we may go back and do some Rashi's. I may add some, some some more details, but let's continue for a moment. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So 600 plus 350? Yeah. Verse 29. And all the days of Noah were 950 years. And he died. And that concludes the story and the, the time period of Noah. Now, um, let's talk about... Um, what happened here? Let's talk about what happened. Um, Noah planted a vineyard, and Rashi explains that he shouldn't have done that, right? Sorry. Yes. Was Noah sodomized? Yes, according to oh. according to one tradition. Yes, okay. yeah, by his son. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, Verse 20, when Noah plants a vineyard, it says, Vayachel noyach, Noach began, but Yachel could also be like chulin, which is or chol, which is like profane or mundane. So Rashi says he made himself profane, for he should have first engaged in planting something else, not a vineyard. In other words, why are you running to make wine? Like, oh. do something else. Plant a peach tree. Hey, that's what we did. Kidding, we didn't plant it. It was there. Um, Oh, in case you're wondering, how could he plant a vineyard? So Rashi explains, when he entered the ark, he brought with him vine branches and shoots of fig trees. So there you go. He had the vine branches, the fig trees. That's it. Um, Hold on. Give me a second. Okay. He saw his father's nakedness. Might as well read this Rashi from the Talmud, Sanhedrin 70a. Some say he castrated him. And some say that he sodomized him. Well, there you go. So that's it. So the, that's the sodomizing is only one opinion. The other one is castration. And the, the rationale for that, by the way, rationale, as if, right? But the, the thought process that the Talmud says is that Ham was thinking that I don't, he didn't want his father to have more kids. Why? Because if he had another kid, they would have to divide the world into another, another portion. Right now, it's divided into three. Imagine if you had four four kids. Oh, then you lose between 33% and 25%. You're losing what? Like 8%? That's crazy. 8.333%? Who wants that? So according to this opinion, that's why he castrated him, to prevent his father from having any more kids. And I just need to explain what the lesson is vis-a-vis greed. You could have... A whole world, pretty much, other than two other people, and it's still not enough. You could have 33% of the world's wealth. I'm going to say that again. You could have 33% of the world's wealth and still not be satisfied. I hope I hope uh, what I'm saying is coming across. We live in a world in which... Anyway, okay. No, 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 no commentaries right now. Apply it as you wish. Let's back into The point, the point is a cautionary tale for greed and what greed can um can uh can that was the testimony that the whistleblower was giving about facebook yeah basically that it's all that, that notwithstanding the amount of profit there's still a desire for more and more and more it, 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 with with whatever damage is going to be caused and that that doesn't matter and that's When a a person or a society—I'm not blaming. I'm not speaking about any specific people, by the way. I'm just saying when a society, when a culture, when a company, whatever it is, is focused on more and more and more at the expense of decency, humanity, whatever, it it, it begins to be problematic. problematic. This is what happens here in the story, according to the Talmud, according to the first opinion. That's why he castrated him, not to not have more kids, to not cut into his. His slice of the pie, which is Meshuggah. Because like three people, a quarter of the world is not enough for you. No. That's the nature of greed. It's not enough. It's never enough. The Talmud says someone who has 100 wants 200. And someone who has 200 wants 400. You see what happened? You don't just want another 100. It doesn't say if you, if you have 100, you want 200, 200, 300. No, 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 no. The moment you get 200, now your Hasagas, now your vision Expands also, so you don't just want hundred. That's that's child's play. Now you want another two hundred. Oh. Okay, it's it's a cautionary tale. Um, let's continue. I'm going to toggle Rashi off. I think we got what well, I, th- I think we got uh, what we needed from Rashi for right now. Genesis chapter ten, verse number one. And these are the generations. The Torah is now going to list. It did this before, by the way, from Abraham, From sorry, from Adam, Adam. From Adam to Noah, it did this last week. It listed all the generations. Now it's going to do those ten generations from Adam to Noah. Now another ten generations from Noah to Abraham, which we're going to do now. And these are the generations of the sons of Noah: Shem, Ham, and Japheth The so- and sons were born to them after the flood. The sons were born to them to these three sons after the flood. Grandchildren of Noah. The sons of Japhet were Gomer and Magog and Madai and Yavan. Yavan. Yavan is Greece. Greece the musical? No, Greece the, Greece the country. And Tuval and Meshech and Siros. and the sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Oh Ashkenaz. Sounds like Europe. And Rifat and Torgama. Or toga, Togarma. And the sons of Yavam were Elisha and Tarshish, Kitim and Dodanim. From these, the islands of the nations separated in their lands, each one to his language according to their families in their nations. So the sons of Noah had children of their own and they developed, they expanded into their own nations, their own lands, their own languages. And the sons of Cham were Cush and Mitzrayim and Put. And Canaan. And the sons of Cush were Sava. Sava. And Havilah. And Savta. Savta. Not, not Babi. No, Savta is Hebrew for grandmother. That's not what this is. And Savta and Rama and Savtacha. Savtacha. And the sons of Rama were Sheba or Shiva and Dedan. And Cush. Right? Chum's son, Cush's son, was Nimrod. Cush begot Nimrod. Nimrod was a very wicked king. Idolatrous and just a... He's the one who threw Abraham into the furnace. Which we'll get to next... We'll talk, we'll talk about that next week. And Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty man in the land. Uh, he was a Gibar. He was a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Okay, I guess that's, that's a bumper sticker that people used to have. He was a mighty hunter, like people said. Like Nimrod, a mighty hunter. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babylon. There we go, Bavel. We're starting to get familiar names. We had Mitzrayim, we had Egypt before. Now we have Babylon, Bavel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Chalna, and the land of Shinar. From that land emerged Ashur, Ashur, And he built Ninveh. Ninveh, remember the story of Jonah and the whale in Ninveh? That's where he was supposed to go and uh, give the prophecy. He built Ninveh, and Rechovot, Ir, and Kalach. I don't think this is Rechovot in Israel. I think it's a different one. And Resen, between Ninveh and between Kalach. That is the great city. There you go. And Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim the child. Mitzrayim means Egypt. uh, That's what we call it in Hebrew. But Mitzrayim the person begot the Ludim, and the Ananim, and the Lahabim, and the Naphtuchim and the pasrusim, and the kasluchim. This is, honestly, I'm channeling some Dr. Seuss here. It it just feels like, I'm not not dissing the Bible or the names. I'm just saying, the rhythm is getting me into that. I'm just picturing just whimsical, just me, doesn't have to be you, but now it's you also. So, I want to do this again, because I'm enjoying this. Mitzrayim begot the ludim. I love how it's the ludim. It's not Ludim, a person, it's like the Ludim and the Ananim and Anamim and the Lahabim and the Naptuchim and the Pasusim and the Kasluchim. All from who from whom? The Philistines emerged. Aha! Where the Plishtim, the Philistines. Palestinians? I don't know. Philistines. Where they emerge? From these peoples. Right? All from this, uh, from this line. And the Kaftorim. Don't forget about those guys. And Canaan begot Zidon, his firstborn, and Ches. And the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Girgashites. Oh, we've heard of those guys. And the Chivites and the Archites and the Sinites and the Arvidites and the zemrites and the Hematites. And afterwards, the families of the Canaanites were scattered. Whew. They had to be scattered. Man, all those ites together, whoo, creates a complicated Thanksgiving dinner. They each went to their own way and had their own place and the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you come to Gerar. Sounds like directions. How do I get to the nearest gas station? What you're going to do is you're going to go to the border from Sidon till you come to Gerar, until Gaza, as you come to Sidon and Gomorrah and Arma and Zoboyim until Lesha. Lusha. There you go. These are the sons of Ham, according to their families. We really need a tree or something. These are the sons of Ham according to their families and their tongues and their lands and their nations and others. They had language, uh, geography, and they were different peoples. And to shame there were also born children. Shame, right? The uh, the oldest son, the righteous son. He was the father of the people of the other side of the river. Ah, the other side of the river. Aver Hanar, the Aver, the Ivri, the Hebrews, the other side, the brother of Yaf of Yephet. The elder, the sons of Shem were Elam or Elam, sorry, and Ashur, and Apach, uh, Arpachshad, and Lud and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz or Utz, and Chul, and Geter, and Mash. Not Mash. That was the show. Twenty-four, and Arpachshad begot Shalach, and Shalach begot Aver. That's very important. Aver is a grandson of Shame. Shame was the son of Noah. Noah's oldest son, Shame, was a righteous man. His grandson was Aver, and together they formed a dynamic duo and opened up, drum roll please, the very first yeshiva. According to our tradition, Shame and Aver. I'm calling him Aver, even though here it's Eber. Because his name in Hebrew is Aver, and that's what I'm going with. Shame and Aver opened up a yeshiva that Abraham studied at after he discovered monotheism. Legit. There was a yeshiva of monotheistic studies. It was on the down low. Abraham is the first Jew, not because he's the first to believe in God, but because he was the first to share that with others and to work actively to brighten the world and make the world a brighter place. These others, they were righteous and they studied. But I just want to point out Eivar and, of course, Shame, Right? So just so you know, Shem's son, Arpachshad, right? Shame had a bunch of sons. One was Arpakshad. Arpachshad's son was Aver. So Eivar was the grandson of Shem. And to Aver were born two sons. One was named Peleg because in his days the earth was divided. And the name of his brother was Yaktan. And Yaktan begot Almodad and Shelaf and Hazam, ho, 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 easier in the Hebrew for me, and Yorach, and Hadoram, and Uzal, and Dikla, and Oval, not the shape, the person, and Avimal, and Sheva, verse 29, and Ophir, and Chavila, and Yovav, all these were the sons of Yaktan. And their settlement was from Mesha as you come to Sephar, the mountain of the east. These are the sons of shame, according to their families, according to their tongues, and the lands, according to their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations and their nations. And from these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood, which is the perfect segue or teaser for tomorrow when we read about the story of the tower and the dynamic separation of peoples. All of that coming up tomorrow. Yeah. Rabbi, is this referring to the 70 nations? Yes. 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 This is what precipitates. This is where the 70 nations come from. In fact, if you counted up all these nations, let me see if I have a chart here. A little handy dandy chart. Um, Give me a moment. No, not here. Hold on. Let me look in the appendix for some charts and graphs here. Hold on, let's get the appendix here, boys and girls. Nope. We have here the animal, let me look at the index, if if it's even here. I know that in some Mushroom, they they list all 70 nations, and I thought they might have done it here. I'll be honest, I thought it was here. Um, (sighs) Diagram of chronology of the flood, no, that's not what we're looking for. No, you know what, it's not here. All right. Please uh, quickly. Uh, at the beginning of this portion, you mentioned how it was the first mention of Canaan. Canaan you know how, so the end of the Torah, yeah, we go into the land of Israel. And I wasn't clear on how you were describing what starts. Yeah, basically, what happens is that Canaan it comes from Ham, who is the cursed son, and Canaan is cursed to be a slave to the other families, the other the other brothers, and. Um, The Canaanites, the the people that lived in Israel before the Jewish people got there, that that, they they come from Canaan, from that cursed nation, and so it's interesting that as the Torah ends, what's happening is that the Jewish people who come from shame are about to inherit the land of Israel, which was one reason we it. I mean, that shows. I mean, because it wasn't under good possession, right? Yeah, basically, it's right, right, right. And the destiny of, of Canaan was of Canaan was to be usurped, if that's the right way to pronounce it, was to be under under the brother not on top. So it came a point in time when, when that was manifest. All right, so what's the moral of the story today? Um, we had a lot of information, a lot of family trees, a lot of hard-to-pronounce names, that's for sure. But what's the, what, what are some lessons so that we just can focus as we move into the rest of the day? So I want to share with you a few things. Number one, um, the idea of a covenant and a commitment. You know, on on special occasions, whether it's a birthday or a New Year's or a holiday, it's good, or any day, it's good to take a resolution. The point of a resolution is that you say it in a moment of inspiration and that that should inspire you even when you're not inspired. So you say, you know what, this year, every day I'm going to learn a piece of Tanya or every day I'm going to say some psalms, some Tehillim, every single day. The reason why you make that commitment is so that on the day that you wake up or that you're around and you're not so inspired to do it, you're like, but I made a commitment. So that's the idea that God makes a covenant with Noah, with his progeny, with us to never again destroy the world, even if he might be tempted to do so. God, I'm not laughing at that. I mean, I was, but I shouldn't be. But even if things are are a little uh, not so kosher uh, down here, God says, I'm going to pull back on that commitment. We need to make commitments, good commitments for us, for inspiration. So that's one message. Um, Another message that I want to share quickly is the idea of the rainbow. The rainbow, of course, symbolizes the purity that rises above that can refract the light. And the message for us is share light and you will receive light. Share the opposite. No, we don't have to finish that sentence. Share light and enjoy the light. So that's the positive message. And the final message I want to mention has to do with the story of Ham and his father, where, according to one opinion, he castrates him because he's afraid of his father having more kids and him losing a piece of the pie. And the message is the cautionary tale about greed and the desire for more. When it comes to happiness, the Mishnah says, Ezehu Asher, who is rich, hasameh pechalko, one who is satisfied with what they have. You could have everything and be miserable because you're not satisfied with what you have. You could have relatively not a lot and be happy because you're satisfied with what you have so we're reminded about the the beauty of appreciation gratitude and uh, and 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 being satisfied with your blessings and the danger of always seeking more being ungrateful and um, and the, the the danger of greed okay those are the messages the three messages that I wanted to share for you today with you today um, questions comments yes Ray yeah. Oh, um, Ray first and then Sarah. Yeah, Ray. Um, isn't it so that on your birthday you bless other people? Yeah, you, you could. Yes, yes. Your Mazel is strong, which means your um, your fortune, your um, yeah, you you have a spiritual power on the day of of a birthday to bless others. Yeah, especially a Hebrew birthday. So always know your Hebrew birthday. Yeah. If you don't know it, go to just Google Chabad um, Hebrew date converter, and you'll just plug it in, and you'll get your, your Hebrew date. And then write it down somewhere, like on the fridge, and remind yourself. Or you can let me know, and then we'll remind each other. Something like that. Okay, no promises about reminders, but whatever. All right, Sarah, jump in. Oh, never to destroy the world again, or never to destroy the world? With water. That's a great question. Good. good. Yeah, and I and I, I kinda mentioned it and didn't didn't like elaborate on it. Yesterday God said I'm never gonna do it again. I'm never gonna destroy the world again. Today he says that I'm going not gonna destroy it with a flood with a flood. So the question is, well hold on one second. Is he backing off of his pledge to never again destroy the world? He's just saying I'm not gonna use a flood? Or is he like what what's the what's the deal? So My understanding is that it refers to either. In other words, not with a flood and not the whole world. So the whole world anyway, and even a large portion with a flood, although there have been floods, as we know, but I guess, um, I don't know. My understanding is that it's referring to in general, not to destroy the world again, not to disrupt the seasons. We spoke about that yesterday. Um, But there's a specific thing also, about not, not floods um maybe on a very large scale that's my understanding i'm sure it's elaborated on somewhere but that's to the best of my recollection what's going on there's a there's a um a, there's a commentary a medrash, that says that that's why um pharaoh told um that's why pharaoh decreed to throw the boys the jewish boys into the nile river because he knows that god punishes kind of in concert with the crime. So he figured he'll, he'll, God forbid, drown the Jewish boys in water. And if God wants to punish him, he would have to punish him with water. But God already promised that he wouldn't destroy a population with water. So the Medrash says, Haha, silly Pharaoh, tricks are for kids. You didn't realize, right? That God only promised not to destroy the whole world with, with, with a flood, but one nation, totally. And indeed, the downfall of Egypt comes about through what? the splitting of the sea when the Egyptians drowned. I mean, that was the ultimate end. Of course, there were 10 plagues, but when everyone collectively was was eliminated, I mean, not every, but when, when the big number was eliminated, that was with water. So what it seems here, Sarah, to answer your question, is that God is saying not to destroy the world at all. With a flood, again, a very large scale, but on an individual nation scale, water is still an option. And that's what the measure says Pharaoh didn't consider. Or miscalculated about. All right, that's it for today. Great to see you guys. Don't forget, tonight, Curious Tales of the Talmud, Volume 2. If you like storytelling, if you like mysteries to solve and puzzles to figure out, if you like to study together, this is the course for you. 8 p.m. If you're not yet signed up, hit me up. Send me a text or an email or go online, intownjewishacademy.org. Sign up for it. You're going to love it. If you want to try it, try it. You're still going to love it. 8 p.m. tonight on Zoom. Curious Tales of the Talmud number two. All right. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you guys. Take care.